You're listening to sermon audio from Grace Mosaic, a congregation of the Grace DC Network in Northeast DC. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org. I came across a quote this week, and for me, this quote is sticky, meaning it's sticking with me. It was written by an author named Wayne Dyer. I cannot tell you much about this author at all. I just know that this quote is money. He says this. He says, if you change the way you look at things, the things you look at change. If you change the way you look at things, the things you look at change. And this quote is a reminder to me about why I love the show Antiques Roadshow so much. Maybe you don't know what Antiques Roadshow is. Maybe you sleep on Antiques Roadshow, or maybe you literally fell asleep watching Antiques Roadshow. That's okay, completely understandable. Antiques Roadshow is a a PBS joint, sort of like a Spike Lee joint, but very different. A PBS joint, all right? And how Antiques Roadshow works is, is people come from miles around, and they bring stuff to a big convention center, okay? They bring trinkets and jewelry and furniture and artwork, and they bring it to these master appraisers. I don't know where these people come from, but these people are experts in furniture, painting, trinkets, jewelry, and what they do is they look at the person's object that they brought, and they tell them how old it is, who made it, who designed it, and then, of course, the part you're waiting for in the show all the time is how much the thing is actually worth, right? I remember one time Melissa and I were watching an episode where this woman brings in this pair of earrings. And to me, they were not my kind of earrings, if I had a kind of earrings. (laughs) They weren't anything special. And the woman just, she was just kind of like, I'm curious, I got these from my grandmother, whatever. So she brings them to the appraiser, and the appraiser takes them back, and they, they do their studies or whatever, and he comes out and he says, how much do you think these things are worth? And she's like, I don't, I don't really know. And then he goes on to tell her who designed it, and it's this famous jewelry maker, and these are extremely rare. And at auction, these would fetch $20,000 for this pair of earrings. And all of a sudden, the normal thing that she had brought in and the way that she looked at it completely changed. If you change the way you look at things, the things you look at change. Because she came to know that the things she was looking at indeed had a master designer. A master craftsman had made that pair of earrings and it became priceless in her eyes. The Christian faith, if it is true to the story of Holy Scripture, sees the created world and everything in it as a priceless gift made by a master craftsman, a creative creator. Psalm 24.1 says, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Many people have walked away and are walking from the Christian faith, walking away from the Christian faith, not just because they don't believe its doctrines, not just because they don't believe in the reality that there could be such a thing as sin and redemption and a crucifixion and a resurrection, I think many people are increasingly leaving the faith because they find the faith completely irrelevant in their life. I see this in my generation and especially in the generation up and coming. Christianity has been put off in a category to pertain to the spiritual and the moral and the behavioral of life, often hypocritically, it's said, but not to the real, raw physicality of life. And so people are finding alternative spiritualities through more physical spirituality. 
That's expressed in sexuality, sexual identity, which I think can never be divorced from spirituality. Maybe that's expressed in astrology or healing crystals or herbal practices, an embrace of the mystical, meditative life, mindfulness life. All of those things are on the rise, and they'll continue to rise. And the thing is, they feel much more accessible to people than the Christian faith has often felt, those who grow up in the church. And all of this is completely understandable because you and I are creatures in an enchanted world, made in some amazing sense by a creative creator. Our faith as Christians, if it actually walks in steps with the Spirit's breathed out scripture, deeply embraces the physical life, the raw, the material, the work, the rest, the beauty, the sexuality, yes, the flowers, the forest, the creatures, but it embraces everything as a gift of the great giver and a channel towards praise and thanksgiving and adoration, not as an end in in itself. We are closing out this series today called Songs in the Key of Life, and we've explored the Psalms, the book of Psalms, We've seen how the Psalms meet us in so many different postures and emotions of our life. We've looked at Psalms of wisdom, Psalms of confession, Psalms of lament, Psalms of complaint, Psalms of crying out for justice in an unjust world. And here we have one of the many in the book of Psalms, Psalms of praise and creation Psalms. The Psalms display a remarkable integration of spirituality and physicality within a created world. In fact, in the Bible in general, as in fact many have tried to do this, but you cannot drive a clean wedge between the sacred and the secular, the physical and the spiritual. You cannot divorce nature and physicality and food and wine and coffee with a prayerful life of praise according to the Psalms. And what I want to say today is that the Psalms can help to heal us as Christians, as people of God, and reclaim our relationship to all things, to all of creation, to all of God's image bearers through the practices of praise and gratitude and meditation. So for our last psalm today, we are going to look at one of these many psalms of praise. And as I read it, it took me a long time, right? It's a long psalm. But it's a psalm that leads us back to an awareness of the many facets of who God is. First, the psalm is going to praise the creator. Then the psalm's going to praise the provider. And lastly, the psalm's going to praise the redeemer. Because God is all of these things. God is creator. God is provider. God is redeemer. And as we go through these three sections, I want you to, again, use your imagination, set this psalm even before you, have the bulletin in front of you, because what the psalmist is going to do is he's going to, he's going to zoom out, and then he's going to zoom in. We're going to start at the 1,000-foot at the view, the landscape view, and then we're going to go into a scene of nature, and then finally we're going to go into the realm of the human heart itself, life and breath. So first, praising the Creator First verse of the psalm says, Bless the Lord, O my soul. You might have remembered that one from the psalm before this one, Psalm 103, which starts in the same way. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, praise his holy name. Psalm 103 praises God for his salvation. If you remember that verse in Psalm 103, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our sins from us, right? Psalm 104 is going to largely praise God as a creator. 
because God's a savior and a creator. The psalmist here begins his prayerful meditation by speaking to his own soul. This happens a lot in the psalms. In prayer, what you see in the psalms is that the person praying actually speaks to themselves in third person and gives themselves spiritual direction. Because he's about to begin this prayerful meditation of, of just what he sees when he looks at the world. But first, he wants his heart to engage in the life of prayer. We can often approach prayer or spirituality in general like we do other things as passive consumers. Where we're waiting on that divine two-day delivery to show up right to our doorstep. And all of a sudden, we will be in the feeling space of talking with God. But what the Psalms lead us to as a practice of prayer is saying, Soul, hello, are you there? Are you ready to praise? It's time for you to praise. And in fact, soul, I'm going to show you why you should praise. I'm going to show you why you should bless the Lord's name. Because soul, you need to praise. What would our Sunday mornings look like if we woke up and spoke to ourselves first thing and said, Soul, are you ready to praise God? Because God is worthy to be praised. And so what the psalmist does is he begins this prayerful meditation to God and to his own soul by zooming out. And I like to think that the psalmist, when he wrote this psalm, was outside. I like to think that he was a nature walker. And he was sitting there with his prayer journal. And he was looking out over what he was seeing with his eyes. And he was paying, here's my phrase, he was paying prayerful attention to what he was seeing. He was paying prayerful attention. And he begins to meditate on the whole earth as God's house and God's dwelling place. He says, the light that I see, the rays of sun, the creator God wraps the light around himself like, like, I, like I wrap a robe around my body. That's how big God is. The sky, God put the sky up like we put tent fabric on tent poles. The, the hand of the creator just simply draped it up. That's what the psalmist is saying. The clouds, the clouds are the Lord's Rolls Royce, his chariot, his limo, the wind, that's the maker's magic carpet ride. I just watched Aladdin the other day. So <laughs> that's the image that the psalm is showing us. It's looking out over a landscape and not just seeing natural elements. It is seeing a grand house of God. This is a way of perceiving the world. When you look, if you change the way you look at things, the things you look at change. This is a filter, a pair of prescription lenses to lead, that leads to de descriptive praise. To use a rather bland word that I really don't want to use, but I don't have a better word for it, it is seeing the world theologically. Now, I might rather want to say that the, psalm, the psalmist is viewing the world as it actually is, an enchanted dwelling place of God. And he's expressing this as an ancient Jewish man would, ancient Near Eastern man, viewing creation as God's temple palace, with God's temple, his crib, up there in heaven, above the pillars of the, of the water, which means the place where rain falls down, above the upper waters. I love this way of viewing the world. And it is 
though, I don't want to say this in a derogatory way at all. It is a pre-scientific way of viewing the world, but it is not an anti-scientific way of viewing the world. Throughout the Christian tradition, get this, many from diverse backgrounds have, have not seen a division between the sciences and theology. The sciences describe natural processes and, and chemical processes through terminology, through scientific terminology. And theology describes God's divine work of creation and sustainment. And in our American context, we are chose like we are, we, we are given a choice to polarize those two things. But throughout the Christian tradition, many thinkers from diverse backgrounds have not done that. To say that creation finds its origin and its purpose and its beauty in the beautiful triune God is not to negate a scientific testimony of truth. And this week as I've been dwelling on this, I went back to a historical figure that you all might remember from your elementary school, like Black History Month lessons, which is George Washington Carver. See, anyone remember George Washington Carver? All right. He is known as the what? Peanut man. All right. Because he was this botanist in the 20th century who discovered peanut butter and peanut oil and like a million things you could do with the peanuts. He was a conservationist, an ecologist, a botanist. But he was also a deeply formed Christian who sought to integrate his scientific life with his spiritual life. He said, quite simply, that science is simply telling the truth about anything. And as we get closer to God, as we, we get closer to God, as we get more intimately acquainted and understand everything that God has created. The Christian tradition has often say that, said that God writes two books. One of them, he writes in creation, and one of them he writes in scripture. And you learn about God by studying both of his books. St. Augustine said, some people, in order to discover God, read books. But there is a great book, the very appearance of everything that's created. Look above you. Read it. God, whom you want to discover, never wrote that book with ink. Instead, he set before your eyes the things he has made. Can you ask for a louder voice than that? Gerard Manley Hopkins, the English poet, said the world is charged with the grandeur of God. That feeling that you get, whether you are a Christian or not, when you look at a landscape and you go, oh my God, <laughs> you express wonder. That is God speaking. That is creation praising and saying, look how powerful the creator is. Look how good the creator is. Look how beautiful the creator is. To use scientific inquiry and hypothesis to tell the truth about the world is not in opposition to God. And in fact, it's just another act of praising God. Newton and all of the great original scientists that we revere were deep people of faith. And they saw their, their study of the world to just be finding the natural laws that God had written into place. Now, when science shifts to a place of explaining the whys and the origins of life, that is when science becomes scientism, a mythology, a religious mindset. But we tend to gloss over this language and idea of God as creator. We say, okay, we get it. God made the world. Mm -hmm. This psalm is just long and tedious. We get it. But the scriptures, both old and new, again and again return to this theme. And the church has found it very important to even put it in the creeds every single week. We believe in one God who created all things. Why? Because I want to say this, people of God. Fundamentally, origin stories matter. If the earth is merely natural resources and human resources, then it's all just capital to use 
to exploit, to extract, to monetize. But if, as Psalm 24 says, the earth is the Lord's, then that means everything here is his. All creatures, animate and inanimate, given to humans as a gift that prompt our gratitude and responsibility, we are so obsessed with the idea of private property, but really there is no such thing as private property. We can label that and have some reality of it. I respect that to some degree. But in the Bible, all you are, you get lent things. The, God has lended you things. God has lended all of humanity things. Origin stories matter. And the psalmist is waking up to this harmonious vision of the world as the maker's mansion, the creator's crib, the Lord's lavish palace. And that we as image bearers of God are just caretakers and cultivators put in this world to care for things. That means every single human being is not a human resource for us to use and exploit and abuse. This is the great heresy of America and American Christianity. And that's why we need to heal to integrate physicality and spirituality. John Calvin said the creation is quite like a spacious and splendid house provided and filled with the most exquisite and abundant furnishings. Everything in it tells us of God. We are supposed to be like God, caretakers of the world. What does that cultivation look like? That's where the psalm moves from praising God as creator to praising God as provider. Praising the provider. And now the psalmist is going to take Picture that landscape again. He's going to go from general mountains and water and sky. He's going to go to a scene in the valley. He's going to zoom further in. And he says, look at the donkeys. All right. Look at the animals of the valley. The Lord has designed the world in such a way that even if you don't live downstream from a mountain that has snow melt or live downstream from a coastline, water can just gush up in the middle of a valley through a spring. And to use scientific language, of course, which I'm going to be rough at, there are underground aquifers that store water, and the pressure becomes too much, and they burst up in the middle of a valley. That's the natural process. But this is looking at it theologically, right? And why does God provide springs? Well, he provides it because he needs a divine watering bowl for the donkeys, and the creations, because water, of course, keeps everything alive. We see this intimate picture of God watering animals as you take care of your own pets to make sure they're watered in the heat. And like a divine gardener, the psalm says God waters the mountains. And, of course, science can describe that process, of course, as water evaporating up from the ground and being stored in the clouds, and the pressure grows, and the, the clouds release it back. But this is viewing this, this in this beautiful, divine way. And, and, and the image is shifting from God's house to God's garden. And now we see that God is like a, a divine gardener who takes his watering can and just pours it all over the mountains. And what is he watering? He's watering the trees that, notice the psalm says, he planted there. Where else, of course, did the forest come from? They are the maker's divine garden bed. And the trees are important. Why? The psalm says because he's looking at the trees and he's saying, well, the trees are important because they provide the habitats for the birds. That's where the birds' houses are. So he's giving a shout out to, to the fact that nature creates habitats for living things. And 
the image again is shifting to God's garden and it says God's trees and God's bird. How would it change our experience of the world? I have a question for you. If we name things like this. What if we looked at the tree in our front yard and said, oh, God has a nice tree out there. Oh, there's a pair of God's cardinals out there. There's God's squirrel playing in the tree. Now, how does that make you feel? Does that feel too tree hugger-y to you? As I was preparing for this sermon, I told Pastor Russ what I was preaching on, and he sent me this funny gif of a dude just like running up to a tree and hugging it. (laughs) Because we have not been formed as Christians to name things in this way. But wow, what a change it is. What the Psalms are doing, as it happens so much in the scriptures, is, is again naming creation for what it is, which is God's property, something to be cared for and learned from. And in fact, all over the place in the scripture, the, the writers of scripture, and of course Jesus himself, look at creation to learn about who God is, right? And you're going to remember this one from Matthew chapter 6. Jesus says, look at the birds. Remember that? They neither sow nor reap. They're not farmers like us. They don't gather into barns. And yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more valuable than the birds? If you're anxious, you can't add a single hour to your life. You see what Jesus is doing? He's paying prayerful attention to the world around him. And he says, look at the flowers of the fields. They don't grow. I mean, they grow, but they don't toil or spin. And yet even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these, right? What Jesus is doing is he's saying, read the maker's book of creation. If birds and flowers are cared for, go ahead and know that God is going to take care of you. That's how you read the book of creation. As the old spiritual said, his eye is on the sparrow, and I know he watches me. Why should I feel discouraged? Why should I be afraid of anything? This is how you pray and praise with creation. And you can do this on your own. That's why learning about nature and being connected to the land is a way of being connected to God. It's not just some extracurricular activity. Learn about nature's way, I have one for you, of composting. All right? The forest is watered by God, yes. But where do trees get their food? Well, every spring they bloom, many of them, and in the fall they drop their leaves to the ground, right? Those leaves turn back into nutrient-filled soil. The animals contribute their manure and waste, and that all goes back into the soil. Do things ever feel wasted in your life, people of God? What beauty could possibly come out of the things that you are suffering as you experience? Look at the trees. God doesn't waste things in your life. He can redeem even the darkest moments and nurture you and grow you and compost your soul back into life. Do you ever feel like your work is small and insignificant? Look at a seed. It is tiny, but it gives birth to a massive tree where birds make their home. This is a Jesus parable, of course. So start with small deeds of love and watch the Lord grow your dreams into trees where your neighbors can find life. You see what I'm doing? This is a disruption to the materialistic way of viewing the world. And if the creator treats donkeys and trees and birds in this thoughtful, tender, providing kind of way, how are we, his image bearers, supposed to treat the world? That's an ethical question. Are we supposed to waste it, destroy it, pollute it? Surely not. And that's why the Old Testament is full of laws that have to do with the treatment of animals and land. 
That's why the book of Leviticus has laws against land hoarding and massive acquisition of resources. Because resources are to be shared by everyone in the community. People should not be going with abundant much, wasting everything, while other people can't even get a meal on their plate. This is the vision of creation in the scriptures. We tend to politicize that, but this is theologized reality. This is what God wants from the creation he has made. Francis Schaeffer said, this is an, uh, he said, if I'm going to be in right relationship with God, I should treat the things he has made in the same way he treats them. This is why the book of Proverbs says that if you insult poor people, you insult their maker. Because every single human being has dignity. And I know we say that idea a lot, but every, almost every force in our world works against that. It seeks to monetize people and turn people into machines. But this is against the laws of creation. We are frail human beings. We need to share resources. All right, more. I could, I could preach a whole sermon about that. All right. Human responsibility and dignity comes into even more detail and beauty in verse 14 and 15. Look at that. Look at that. Look at that. It says, you cause grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate that he may bring forth food from the earth, wine to gladden the hearts of man, oil to make his shine, his face shine, and bread to strengthen his heart. Get this. The Lord provides nature. Our job as human beings is to create culture with nature. And in fact, linguistically, the word culture comes from the English word of agriculture. It's about how we shape the land and organize the things around us. And it says that God provides three aspects of culture. First, he provides wine. Can I get an amen from somebody? Not just wine, but other libations. Why does God provide wine? To make people glad. <laughs> I might, I hope I'm not... It, this is, this is a theology of tipsy. I mean, this is what it is. God is saying that humans create, he creates grapes, and then humans take them and ferment them in ways that when they drink them, it makes them glad. That's what he's saying. And he's praising a creator God for that. I praised God this morning that someone figured out that the fruit from what we call the coffee tree, you could take the fruit from it, shell it, extract it, dry it, roast it, pour water over it, and somehow it brought me life this morning. I would not be standing here before you if I had not gotten that coffee this morning. <laughs> this is so amazing, isn't it? Doesn't it just make you want to praise God? Not only wine, oil, other cosmetics, medicine. God provides things in creation that when we extract it in certain ways, it makes our face shine, makes us all shine and glistening. All right. I don't like lotions and oils, as everyone knows who knows me, but praise God. Shea butter, coconut oil, olive oil, soaps. Nature provides relief and refreshment, doesn't it? Soothing and healing and beauty for our bodies. And of course, bread. God didn't create bread, right? Whenever we're in communicants class and we're going over the doctrine of creation, we say, kids, what did God create? And, and immediately someone says, pizza. No. God didn't create pizza. We created pizza. And in the dignity of the creator's heart and his love for us, he gives us culture to take the things that he has made and make new things. We are sub-creators and co-creators with the creative God. Woo! 
And maybe this sermon hasn't resonated with you because you are not an outdoorsy, crunchy, organic, loving, hiking, gardening person. <laughs> I understand there's some people in the sanctuary that don't love the outdoors. But what this, verse, what this verse reveals to us, what this psalm reveals to us, is there is no such thing as a life divorced from creation. I want you to put your hand on the pew that you're sitting on. Put your hand on the cushion that you're sitting on. What that thing is that you're sitting on was a creation, a living being that human beings cut down and harvested and shaped into what you're sitting on now so that you could sit and praise your maker. Here's what right, beautiful human culture is supposed to do. It's supposed to take all of the things that the creator has given to us and then bring them back to God in praise. That pew was a tree, but now it's a pew. And that's what culture is supposed to be. That piano, it is wood and, and metals, but now it creates harmony and facilitates song and rhythm and melody and harmony. Doesn't that just make you want to praise God? This is the work of culture, and we see what human culture is supposed to be, but we also see that it can be destructive as well, because culture can be used to kill and maim God's creation. Somebody invented, and I wish they hadn't a long time ago, a gun. They figured out that if they put powder in a metal tube, they could kill other people. And one day, all of that harmful culture will be destroyed. And all of your work, all of your work of culture, I don't care what you do, children, adult, all of your work is to create culture, and it's to bring glory to God. If you make videos, if you work in ministry, if you type spreadsheets, you are shaping the things of creation to bring praise to God. This is God's provision for the world. This is the creator's provision. And, and in summary, in verse 27, it says, everything looks to you to give them their food. And when you give it to them, they gather it up and you open your hand. They are filled with good things. Every single human being on the face of the earth, whether they know the maker or not, whether they praise the maker as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, God has been good to everyone because he's provided for everyone. And the question of the Bible is, are you going to respond with praise? Or will you continue in your delusion of arrogance to think that you got anything for yourself? To, you th to think that you earn the breath in your lungs, that you earn what's in your bank account or what's in your pocket or what's on your plate. Everything is a gift. All of life is a gift. And that transforms how we view and how we use anything. It transforms how you view your money, how you view your time, how you view with interacting with any other human being. This is the provider God. So the psalmist is praising the provider, but the psalms do not hide the fact that the world, the world's not free of pain. The world is broken profoundly by sin and evil and death. And that's, this psalm doesn't hide it, as many of the psalms don't. To be mature spiritually is to tell the whole truth about God and the world in prayer. It is not to negate the bad things of life, to tell the greatness of God's creation. You need it all. You need to be able to say that God has created and provided, but we also need a redeemer God. We need a God to heal things, to breathe new life into brokenness, to release us from shame and addiction and sin. Don't divorce these things. He is a healer and redeemer, so the psalm praises God as redeemer. He says, when you hide your face, 
They are dismayed. When you take away their breath, they die and return to dust. You and I live under a curse. When someone says they died of natural causes, I always say no. They died of unnatural causes. It was never meant to be in nature that things and people would die. We know that it's a tragedy. There's no such thing as a peaceful death in, in one ultimate sense. And we live in a world where, where disease runs rampant, where illness can break the body, where organs can deteriorate, where people can have accidents that paralyze parts of their bodies, where people oppress other people and remove from them the possibility of life and freedom. We live in a broken world. But there is an, here an acknowledgement that the same divine spirit or breath that created the world is renewing the world and provides for it. When you send forth your spirit, they are created and you renew the face of the ground. That God is not done with creation. One way of understanding the story of the Bible is that it's answering this question, what is the creator going to do to rescue his beautiful creation? This is how the story of the Christian faith provides an answer. How is the creator going to rescue the world? And the truth that the story tells is that the, the creator rescues the world by becoming part of the world. As the theologians said in the past, what is not assumed cannot be saved. And so creator God takes on flesh to heal flesh. The spirit of God breathes life into a human form called Jesus to redeem human forms called you and I. And to put a new spin on a Bible verse that you will all know, for God so loved the... What? For God so loved the... It didn't say God so loved human souls. For God so loved everything in the world, everything that he had made, it, made that he gave a gift just as he gave water to the donkeys, just as he gave a house for the birds, he gave Jesus Christ. And what the scriptures reveal is that Jesus is actually the one through whom everything came into being. It's actually him who's the creator and the sustainer and the renewer and the healer of creation. That was revealed by the way he interacted with creation. Who else could speak to wind and waves and say, be still? Who else could touch the bodies of the poor and the leper and say, be healed? He has an intimacy with the things he has made, and only he could heal. Only he can heal. This is the God who turned water into wine. It wasn't good enough that it should be water, and it wasn't good enough that it should be mediocre wine. He made good wine. <laughs> This is revealed when he commanded the multitudes of fish to fill up the disciples' nets, where he said, get in there and feed. This is revealed when he took bread and fish and somehow he multiplied it so that the whole community could eat. That's who God is. He's a provider. This was revealed when Jesus breathed the breath of life back into Lazarus and said, Lazarus, get up. And he said to the little girl, Talitha Kum, arise, little girl. And this is revealed when he himself became the prototype and picture what, for what renewed, resurrected, physical creation would be. When that same spirit of God that breathed in creation breathed into the dead body of Jesus Christ and renewed him. And revealed to us that the new creation is wounded, but it is healed. 
It is sanctified and transformed. Unless you and I live to see the glorious second coming of Jesus, our breath will depart from us. All of us are on that road. And we will return to the dust from which we came. But we have the first fruits of a physical and beautiful harvest that is coming. Romans chapter 8 verse 11 says, If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Do you see how you cannot divide the physical from the spiritual? Do you see that God and the cosmic redemption of Jesus Christ has to do with everything? The book of Ephesians said that that Jesus was God's plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in heaven and on earth in him. God in his free grace is restoring creation and he is renewing us. That's why Jesus said at the end of the book, Behold, I am making all things new. Spiritually, yes. Physically, yes. People need to be rescued from their guilt and from their shame. And from their sense of inadequacy, you need the love of God to pour into your hearts and say, you are a child of God, redeemed and sanctified by the blood of Jesus. But also physically, poor people need to be liberated from systems of oppression. Racism needs to be fought against. People need to be healed in body and in soul. The redemption of God in Jesus Christ is cosmic. And as Kuiper said one time, there is no Area of creation, no square inch of the universe over which Jesus doesn't look at it and say, mine. All things created through him and for him. That changes the way you look at things. And when you change the way you look at things, the things you look at change. People of God, I want to invite you to see the world with prayerful attention. That every single thing you see this week, every single thing you do, You are looking at the work of a creator, provider, redeemer, healer, God. That changes how you interact with everything. And that's why Paul says at the end of Romans, everything we do is to be for the glory of God. This is the cosmic redemption of Jesus Christ. Amen. Grace Mosaic. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org.